Welcome back to the Moroccan History Podcast, hosted by Saeed. Episode 6, Tales of Andalusia. In our last episode, we learned about the foundation of Morocco with the first dynasty, the Idrisids, and their role in the fusion of religious authority and secular power within the Moroccan throne. A principle that has been the basis of the Moroccan monarchy since its establishment in the year 789. In this episode, we will speak about a subject I am personally very passionate about and one that I feel cannot be skipped or overlooked when studying the history of Morocco, as it was detrimental in the forging of Moroccan identity and paved the way for the establishment of the Moroccan Empire. You should know, this subject has stirred many controversies and has been the cause of vivid debates between academics and amateurs alike as it is still deeply misunderstood by the public and often politicized. Today, we will speak about Al-Andalus or Andalusia. The subject of Andalusi studies is an incredibly complex one as it is a history that spans almost 800 years of the Iberian Peninsula and was a civilizational paradox that few can fully comprehend today. In this episode, we will focus on the first three centuries of Andalusia when it was ruled by the Umayyad dynasty and see how Syrian Arabs and Moroccan Berbers brought the civilization to life. So, what was Andalusia? To begin this episode, let us start by defining the terms. Let's start with the term Iberian Peninsula. Today, the Iberian Peninsula refers to the land south of the Pyrenees that is inhabited by the two countries of Spain and Portugal. One might think that Spain and Portugal have forever co-inhabited the Iberian Peninsula, but that's not the case. The nation of Portugal was founded in 1143 when Alfonso Henriques, the first king of Portugal, signed the Treaty of Zamora with Alfonso VII, king of Castile, recognizing a status that was confirmed by Pope Alexander III in 1179. Spain, on the other hand, only came into existence with the Nueva Planta Decrees of 1707. It was the son of Louis XIV of France who established the Bourbon dynasty in Spain, a dynasty that still sits on the Spanish throne today. However, despite only coming into existence legally in 1707, the inception of Spain as a de facto nation goes back to 1492, when Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile united their kingdoms through marriage and conquered the Kingdom of Granada. Now, let's define the term Andalusia. In an easy definition, Andalusia was Muslim Spain and Portugal. 
In more sophisticated terms, Andalusia refers to the territory of the Iberian Peninsula that was under Muslim control from the year 711 until 1492. Andalusia comes from the Arabic term Al-Andalus, which in turn comes from an obscure Visigothic term used to describe the peninsula before the Umayyad conquest of 711. Andalusia does not refer to a specific kingdom, but rather to the southern European Muslim states that succeeded each other for 781 years in the Iberian Peninsula. Here's an incredibly condensed timeline of Andalusia. Bear with me for this. In the year 711, a Berber chieftain from northern Morocco, Tariq ibn Ziyad, crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, which bears his name, Gibraltar being a corruption of the Arabic Jebel Tariq, meaning the mountain of Tariq, and conquered the Iberian Peninsula in the name of the Umayyad Caliph in Damascus. The Andalusian chapter of history had begun. In the year 756, after the fall of the Syrian Umayyad Caliphate, an Arab Umayyad prince fled the persecutions of the new Abbasid dynasty of Baghdad and fled to Morocco, where he found refuge among the Berber Nafza tribe of his mother and established an emirate independent from the new Abbasid Caliphate in Andalusia. The emirate of Andalusia was born. In the year 929, Abdurrahman III in my opinion one of the greatest rulers in history, declared Andalusia a caliphate and adopted the incredibly prestigious title of caliph, claiming caliphal legitimacy over the Islamic world by virtue of his descendants from the ancient caliphs of Damascus. This was the golden age of Andalusia. In 1031, 100 years later, the caliphate was disestablished after a bloody civil war and replaced by city-states similar in their cultural sophistication and constant infighting to the Italian city-states of the Renaissance. In 1086, the first Moroccan empire, led by the second Moroccan dynasty, the Almoravids, annexed Andalusia to Morocco. In 1147, the second Moroccan empire, the Almohad Caliphate, took over the Moroccan throne and in turn annexed Andalusia, undergoing great building works to emulate the Umayyads and claim a legitimate succession to their caliphate. The Giralda of Seville still stands today as a monument to Almohad glory. In 1230, after the fall of the Almohads, the Kingdom of Granada was established and would be ruled by the Nasrid dynasty, who were culturally and socially very close to the 4th Moroccan dynasty, the Marinids. In fact, one of the jewels of Andalusia today, the Alhambra of Granada, was completed by Muhammad V of Granada after his exile to Fez in Morocco, where he was struck by the beauty of Marinid architecture and sought to reproduce the same in Andalusia. Nasrid rule over Granada continued until their conquest by the Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492, and thus the Andalusian chapter of history was closed. As you can see, there is an incredible number of stories 
tales of blood and glory, of violence and beauty, of triumph and oblivion, of faith and destruction to be told there. A great book that covers the entire period in detail is called Kingdoms of Faith, written by the historian Brian Catless and based on contemporary historians like Al-Bakri or Ibn Hazm or Ibn Khaldun and many many others. It is a great read that I highly recommend to anyone interested in the subject and it's written in easy, unpretentious English that reads like a novel. Another great book, and one which has been a primordial source for this episode, is called The Most Noble of People and was written by Jessica A. Coop, narrating the religious, ethnic and gender identity of Andalusia. Morocco and Andalusia were born only 33 years apart and were both founded by Arab princes fleeing the Abbasid persecutions of the East. Like a brother and a sister entwined by destiny, Morocco and Andalusia have grown together, at times fighting each other, at times uniting against the common enemy, but constantly learning from each other. These two states have always been heavily influenced by their common will to strive for an ideal that very few civilizations have reached in history and were at the forefront of Islamic civilization, having contributed inventions and ideas to the world that are still studied today and that were a fundamental element for the inception of the European Renaissance. In a poetically despondent chapter of history worthy of a Shakespearean tragedy, the fall of the Marinids of Morocco in 1465 indirectly caused the fall of Andalusia in 1492. Indeed, when the Marinids fell, they were unable to defend the Nasrids of Granada against the mighty conquest of the Catholic monarchs, who forever closed the Andalusian chapter of history. This episode, however, will focus on the social makeup of Andalusia for the first three centuries, meaning when Andalusia was ruled by the Umayyads, as it is an essential part of this podcast and of Moroccan history and will help us understand the future episodes of Windsor the West on the Moroccan dynasties that helped shape the Andalusian tales. If there is one person who perfectly embodies the contradictory, even schizoid nature of Andalusi culture, it is Ibn Hazm. This polymath, all at once a jurist, a theologian, a historian and a philosopher, was born in the Caliphate of Cordoba and grew up in the Umayyad court. He was a muwallad, meaning a Muslim whose ancestors were indigenous to the Iberian Peninsula but adopted Islam upon his conquest by the Umayyads, and yet he argued for the virtue of being Arab and even went further than most Arabs would in excluding the unworthy from that category. At the same time, as a devout Muslim, he believed in the equality of all virtuous believers. Arabic chronicles of Andalusia all emphasize the role of Arabs in the region's conquest and subsequent history. Even though the original invasion was led by a Berber, Tariq ibn Ziyad, leading a Berber army, Tariq was in fact a Mawla or a client of the Arab governor of Qairawan, Musa ibn Nusayr. 
Tariq seems to have carried out the invasion without the orders of the Arab governor and when Musa arrived to the peninsula in 712 with the Arab army he commanded in central North Africa, among them the Quraysh, the Prophet's tribe, he met with Tariq in Toledo, a meeting that apparently ended with Tariq abasing himself and apologizing for acting on his own, and Musa having Tariq's head shaved. The two commanders then joined forces, but with Musa in charge and representing legitimate authority, which is to say Arab authority. From that point on, the ruling class of Andalusia was predominantly Arab until the collapse of the Umayyad Caliphate in 1031, and not until the Almoravid annexation of 1086 did Berbers rule all of Andalusia. According to Jessica A. Coop, quote, Arabs in Andalusia formed the social elite, but the question of who was Arab was an open one. Although medieval people believed biological inheritance played an important role in ethnic identity, it was not the determining factor it is today. In Umayyad Andalusia, language ability, cultural practices and religion were also factors and individuals could lose one ethnic identity and acquire another. Rather than being strictly a matter of blood, Arab ethnic identity under the Umayyads was made up of a variety of cultural factors." End quote. The author goes on to explain that Arab identity was defined on biological descent, which was particularly important to the Umayyads and the aristocracy, but also by a person's knowledge of Arabic, not in the simple sense of knowing the colloquial form of the language, but of speaking, reading, and writing classical Arabic, and being familiar with the classical Arabic learned traditions. Taken together, the biological and linguistic sides add up to a picture of Arab identity that was far from clean-cut, and that allowed for movement in and out of the group. Another really important thing to note is that the ideas about biological descent were different from modern ones. In most cases, only descent through the male line counted, so that a man could have a Berber or European mother and grandmother, but still be considered of pure Arab lineage, as was the case for most of the Umayyad princes and caliphs of Andalusia. From 711 until the Great Berber Revolt of 740, Andalusian society was almost exclusively composed of indigenous Basques, Goths, and Berber elements coming from North Africa. Arab presence was exclusively limited to the Umayyad armies and the new political elite. After the Great Berber Revolt and the Umayyad defeat at the hands of the Berber chieftain Maysara al-Matghari, the Syrians fled North Africa and relocated to Andalusia, forever changing the social structure. By 780, some 50,000 Syrian and Yemeni warriors were in the peninsula, traveling with their entire tribal or familial groups, as was the Bedouin custom, and as has been described by the Carolingian historian Paul the Deacon, who described the Arabs entering Gaul in 720, quote, with their women and children as if to settle there." Unquote. These Arab warriors strongly affirmed their ethnic identity from the start and until the 9th century, 
forming individualized Arab groups not in the least assimilated to the natives. Sources mentioning Berbers are scarcer, but the markedly higher numbers mentioned lead us to conclude that Berbers came from the Maghrib, which from the year 789 onwards became Morocco, in far greater numbers. For example, in 901, a certain Ibn al-Qit, literally meaning son of the Goth, raised an army in a rebellion against the Umayyad Emir Abdullah of some 60,000 Berbers. The extent of Berberization in Andalusia may specifically be found in toponymic signs left by Moroccan Berber tribal groups where numerous places still attest to their presence. Mequinenza in Aragon refers to the Miknasa tribe, Adzaneta in the region of Valencia refers to the Zenata tribe, Albarracin refers to the Banuracin tribe, all of Moroccan Berber origin. In the 10th century, Abdurrahman III fostered the progress of a powerful Berber military aristocracy, granting them veritable fiefs in exchange for the defense of the upper frontier of Andalusia. But other than Syrians and Moroccans, another external group formed in Andalusia and had an impact on its culture much bigger than the size of its small minority. These were the Jews of Andalusia, who acted as merchants between the Franks and the Andalusians, and who were powerful viziers like Hasdai ibn Shaprut under Abdurrahman III or the Banu Nagrila for the Zirids of Granada. Now, the Syrian Arabs and Moroccan Berbers may have formed the bulk of the social and political elite during Umayyad times, but the bulk of the population was composed of native Iberians, some called Mozarabs, coming from the Arabic word Musarab, meaning Arabized Christians, and some called Muwallads, meaning Muslims of indigenous Iberian origin. In fact, only in the 10th century, so three centuries after the conquest, under the rule of Abdurrahman III, did the numerical ratio of Muslims and Christians in Andalusia reverse in favor of the former. Many Christians became powerful diplomats and viziers, like Rabi' ibn Zaid, known in Latin as Resimund, who wrote the calendar of Cordoba and was sent on diplomatic missions by Abdurrahman III to Constantinople. These different ethnic and religious elements of which Andalusi society was composed formed a mosaic of groups living side by side rather than a melting pot. Of all the Umayyad rulers, Abdurrahman III was the most successful in forging an Andalusi identity that transcended creed and religion. When he declared himself caliph in 929, he ruled not only over the world's Muslims, but every Andalusi citizen, no matter their ethnicity or religion. This unification was achieved in a social and cultural context of Arabization, rather than ethnic assimilation. But this social complexity was marked by deep-rooted antagonisms, which broke out with violence and virulence during the times of strife in Andalusia, and eventually, led to the unfortunate end of the Caliphate in 1031.
Politically speaking, the Andalusi Umayyad Caliphate was at first quite close to Idrisid Morocco. Helping the Idrisids fight their sworn enemy, the Fatimids, who were a growing threat in North Africa and had their eye on Andalusia. However, after the Idrisids swore allegiance to the Fatimids, the last Idrisid ruler of Morocco, Al-Hassan ibn Qannun, was captured and brought to Cordoba to submit to the Caliph Al-Hakam II in 974, and Morocco was annexed to Andalusia, coming under Umayyad control for the second time in its history. Indeed, it was the Andalusi Umayyads who brought down the first Moroccan dynasty and put an end to Idrisid rule in Morocco. Some 100 years later, however, in 1080, it would be the Moroccans' turn to annex Andalusia to their empire when the Almoravid ruler Yusuf ibn Tashfin crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and saved Andalusia from being conquered by the Christians of the north. And this will be the subject of our next episode, the rise of the Almoravids. Thank you for tuning into the sixth episode of Winds of the West. I hope you've enjoyed it and I look forward to speaking to you next month about the rise of the first Moroccan Empire, the Almoravids. <laughs>